Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about uncertainty and trade policy. President Donald Trump seems to love catching people off guard. But is there evidence that uncertainty is, is really higher than it's ever been? And what do we really know about how that might affect the economy? To answer some of these questions, we'll have a special guest, Nick Bloom. Nick is the William D. Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford University, and he's one of the co-creators of something called the Economic Policy Uncertainty Index. Nick, hello. Hi there. Okay, so we're going to be talking about uncertainty. Could you just walk us through the various ways economists think uncertainty matters? Like, what's the what's the economic theory? You know, the the main way we think uncertainty matters is it leads firms and consumers to pause what they're doing. So think of like you're a firm, let's say you're a retail firm, and you're thinking about pl- opening a new store. You've been successful. You want to open up another shop in a you know second suburb of Austin, Texas. And you suddenly become very uncertain about the local political environment. What are you going to do? Well, one easy thing to do is just to wait, is to see what happens. And that's, you know, repeated across the entire economy, across the U.S. and across globally when uncertainty goes up. So uncertainty tends to lead firms to pause investing. They don't tend to buy new equipment or open new outlets. They pause hiring. And then on the flip side, we see a similar thing with households. So if you're a worker and you're, you know, you're uncertain about your job, again, you typically don't go out and buy a new car or buy a new washing machine. And so both on investment and on hiring on the firm side and on spending on the consumer side, it just leads to a temporary slowdown. So there, the, the kind of you know, model in your head would be that the uncertainty means that firms just you know, postpone decisions, the, the, the value of waiting goes up and so they wait. Tell us about how to think about uncertainty and, and risk aversion. Okay, so I forgot to say, but there are there are two main channels that you'd think uncertainty would be damaging. And in fact, the earlier one, if anything, was risk aversion. So that goes back at least to Tobin and I think back to Keynes. So the you know, again, it's very intuitive. If uncertainty goes up, you'll become nervous, you're and you're risk averse, and therefore you tend to save more and then spend and invest less. So for firms when uncertainty is high, that what's called the cost of capital, the rate they're going to borrow at is higher. Banks are nervous of lending to firms, and so they invest less, and consumers also want to spend less and save more. So there's risk aversion as mechanism A, and then mechanism B is called real options, whereby people pause investing and consuming. And those two are both pretty powerful. So that's a theory. There's there's two main channels through which uncertainty can can be bad. What about the evidence? What do we know from empirical studies that have looked into this so far? So, you know, the the evidence on uncertainty and growth is one of these classic things in economics of does correlation equal causation? So there's a very strong correlation between high uncertainty and low growth. So that's like amazingly strong across countries, across industries, across even firms. Whenever measures of uncertainty go up, like, you know, volatility or stock market volatility or disagreement amongst forecasters or you know, newspaper mentions of the word uncertainty, whatever you like, growth slows down. And particularly, actually, investment slows down. So investment tanks when uncertainty appears to go to go up. Now, the question is, is that causal? That's a much harder question to answer. 
you know, my own personal view, and again, this is very much where the, the research is ongoing, is some of it definitely is. Uh, so we probably, have, you know, the best examples are like anecdotes, frankly, like Brexit. So after the Brexit vote, not a lot happened, but investment really collapsed. So really the main thing that happened after June 2016 was uncertainty goes up and you see investment really full. So I think some of the negative of relationship between uncertainty and growth is causal, but some of it's also effect. So the reverse causality. So where might that come from? Well, imagine the economy slows down, people stop buying and selling less, more companies go bankrupt. It just creates more uncertainty. And so I think there's also this what's often called a, you know amplification or propagation effect. You have a, something nasty happens, uh, like the 9-11 terrorist attacks. There's both bad news and uncertainty goes up. The economy slows down a bit, uncertainty rises a bit more, the economy slows down a bit further. So I think it's both a cause of the recession, but also tends to be something that kind of drags the recession up. Could you talk about the paper that you had looking into this that was was published in 2016 in, in the QJE? So what, what did you look at, at there and, and what did you find? So I, I had a paper in 2016 with Scott Baker, and who's my student, and Steve Davis, who's a uh, colleague, a friend of mine. It came from like a discussion Steve and I were having, I think in about 2009, in a conference in the National Bureau of Economic Research, saying like everyone was complaining at that point about policy uncertainty. And it was about how the US government was struggling to deal with the recession and they had the debate on TARP and quantitative easing. And, you know, like enormous numbers were being talked about for there was like hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of expenditure. So we thought, oh, how can we measure policy uncertainty? And we, we were struggling, mean, to be honest, we were struggling. Like, how do you measure it? And in the end, we settled on, well, maybe you look at newspapers. It seemed like it wasn't the best measure. It was kind of passable. So we started off uh, measuring the, fr- the frequency of newspaper articles that mentioned the triple of that to mention economy or economic, that to mention or uncertain or uncertainty. And then one of, in the end, like, seven policy words like Federal Reserve, Deficit, Budget, Congress, etc. It turns out if you do that and you take a large enough group of newspapers, so in the US we took 10, like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, in the UK we took two, the Financial Times and the Guardian. And so in different countries you take different groups of papers. You see this turns out to be pretty predictive of the economic cycle and also very correlated with other measures of uncertainty. But the lovely thing about newspapers is you can get that thing almost real time. So today I can tell you how many newspaper articles talked about uncertainty yesterday, but I can also do that back to 1900. So that area really took off, not because newspapers are like such a fantastic measure in themselves, but because they're available basically real time and across so many countries and across going back, you know, we have papers going back to like 1880. So you have these measures of, of uncertainty. So can you kind of broadly describe what the time series looks like? So we went back to 1900 in the US. Uh, we have good quality, multiple papers. And you see that uncertainty rises and falls as based on these papers with, you know, events like McKinley's assassination, big spike, the crisis that caused the creation of the Federal Reserve that more, J.P. Morgan was involved in, big spike. World War One, parts, Great Depression, enormous rise around the Great Depression. Uh, if you read the newspaper articles around the Great Depression, it's like amazing. No one knows what's happening. And then Roosevelt comes in. The 50s, 60s were quiet. And then from the 70s onwards, you know, uncertainty seems to pick up again. And most recently, it was obviously the financial crisis in 2008. And then it calms down a bit, there's fiscal crisis, and then recently it surged again with Brexit and Trump from 2016 onwards. 
So you you compile this measure of uncertainty using these newspaper uh, measures, and then what what kind of outcomes are you able to correlate that with? So there's a couple of things we looked at. One is overall GDP growth in the U.S. and in fact, a panel of 12 countries. And yes, when EPU goes up, growth drops down. The other thing was at the firm level in the US, we could match firms to individual subcategories of uncertainty. So the other thing that's nice about newspapers is you can say, well, let's let's look at health uncertainty. So not only do you want the article to talk about our uncertainty, but I also wanted to mention one of hospital, health, nurse, doctor, et cetera, or defense. You want it to mention one of war, you know, military, army, et cetera. And if you look at US firms, what you find is, you know, healthcare firms drop particularly badly in investment and sales when health uncertainty goes up and defense firms cut back particularly in investment when defense uncertainty goes up. So that was the other outcome variable was a sector of firm level measure. Okay. And so within that overall policy uncertainty measure, you have these subcomponents, these different kinds of policy uncertainty. And one of those trade talks listeners will be delighted to hear <laughs> um, is trade policy uncertainty. Um, so what what does that look like um, over time? Tra- trade policy uncertainty is, well, is in some ways graphically the most amazing index because it's, it's like a dead topic. I mean, you know, from World War II until really NAFTA, there was very little coverage of trade. It just what you know, there was a global consensus. We want free trade. You want more integration and globalization. As a bit of policy uncertainty index around NAFTA, but in the last two, three years under Trump, it's just exploded. I mean, it's like almost a vertical cliff. The thing is rocketing up as initially people aren't sure that Trump is serious about beating up on China, and then they become sure, and then the tariffs start, and you know they're rising and rising. So now this thing is an enormous part of overall economic policy uncertainty, whereas five, 10 years ago, it was nothing. I mean, it was like 1%. Who cared about it? Whereas now it's, you know, 20, 30% of articles are talking about trade. So it's a huge driver. So I had a, a kind of worry when I looked at at the trade policy uncertainty measure over time. So the the last time it went up pre-Trump seemed to be in the kind of the early 90s, NAFTA. NAFTA, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and that that's really a different kind of uncertainty, though, right? That's uncertainty about whether there is going to be future trade liberalization, right? Whereas the the uncertainty that we've got now is uncertainty over whether there are going to be new trade barriers yep. erected. And also the magnitude is different, right? And so I guess my worry or my fear would be we've got all of this research looking at the historical relationship between uncertainty and, and economic outcomes. But in trade, we're kind of flying blind because we've not had this. We can't see this kind of uncertainty in the data. It might look like we had this index go up in the 90s, but actually they're really capturing quite different things. And so it just made me worried about people trying to estimate the effects of this uncertainty using this index over long periods of time, in particular for trade policy uncertainty. It's a great question. I, you know, it's kind of like a glass half full type answer, which is on the one hand, you could say, look, things are different. Uh, you know, now it's Trump tweeting wars with China. Back then it was, you know, Clinton and Ross Perot and fights with NAFTA. On the other hand, as an economist, I think, you know, as economists, we should say, well, look, actually, what are we here for? We're here to kind of help policymakers predict the future and learn from the past and try and apply models. You know, we've talked to the Fed, the US Fed and the Bank of England, a lot of policymakers very closely because they have to look ahead. 
really the best guide is to say, well, look, we have this measure of economic policy uncertainty. When it's gone up in the past or fallen in the past, what's happened? And it's true it's not identical, but in the past, rises of that magnitude have been pretty damaging for growth. And we've started to see already growth is, I mean, growth is not slow, but it's hardly great either. In fact, investment in the US is very poor and in Europe is poor. And one of the big factors people blame is, is trade uncertainty. Maybe, maybe I'd, you know, actually, in all honesty, if we, the best measure potentially would be some kind of survey. So I'm building surveys with the Atlanta Fed and with the Bank of England, long run surveys of uncertainty. But we just didn't start them. We only started them in 2015. So if I had a, you know, if I could get a time machine off Doctor Who and go back to the 60s, I would start the survey back then and then would say, wow, we've got 50 years of data. But we just don't have that right now. So our second best, honestly, is newspapers. And you know, from our experience, I know I'm being interviewed by journalists, but you know, journalists basically seem to get it right most of the time, and they're a very good indicator of you know the perceptions of economists and business people on uh, what's happening. So, how worried are you about maybe a separate concern that all this interest in uncertainty it, it's kind of become a buzzword? Journalists are writing about it, and they're writing about it because of all the research that's being done, and and that's why it's receiving all of this attention. Uh, and it's not necessarily the policy uncertainty that policymakers are, are doing. It's all of a sudden people are interested in it for other reasons. You're, you're right. I mean, I we are worried about it. It's part of our ongoing research. I'd say there's like two different stories, and it's hard to tell between them. The first story is, look, it's all real. So, you know, Trump is unlike anything that's gone b before him. For example, I know as an economist, he, you know, he's more or less got rid of the Council of Economic Advisors. He acts more like a businessman. He shoots from the hip. He tweets. He changes his mind. He seems to, you know, he's just so unlike any previous politician or Brexit in the UK is a complete break. And, you know, China's slowing down and the Hong Kong protests and populist politician, you know, the list goes on and on. So maybe there's, you know, there's genuine reasons for thinking there's a real increase in uncertainty. But you're also right to worry that, um, you know, I, you know, I know the way I worked in the Treasury in the UK government. I remember used to write speeches, help write speeches for ministers. And I'm sure the same thing happens, you know, in the Fed and around the world. And what happens is often advisors uh, will look at the academic literature, they look around at the best theories, and they got to come up with some reason to explain the slowdown. And 20 years ago, because there wasn't much academic work on uncertainty or less, certainly, they may you know, feel nervous about blaming on that and blaming on something else, I don't know, productivity growth or foreign trade or something. Whereas now there's like a lot of oh, literature and uncertainty and it seems easy to pin it on that. And so Jay Powell goes and talks about uncertainty, it gets picked up by the Wall Street Journal and it becomes a big buzzword merry-go-round. And I think the two things that push back on the second are, one, uh, when we look at countries where I worry less about this, like the Chinese media or the Russian media, we also see big increases in mention of uncertainty. The second fact actually is, is very economist related. I don't know how much we talked about this, but the Economist Intelligence Unit has these quarterly reports that covers countries around the world. It's about 140 of them. It has these 30-page reports put out once a quarter, very professionally done, aimed at kind of multinationals and private equity companies, et cetera. And for them, we also... Uh, search for the frequency of the word uncertainty or uncertain, and that shows a similar upward trend. Now, I think they're less affected by you know media bias. You could still worry about that, but um, so my sense is there's generally been some real and increase in uncertainty, but potentially there's also some increase in buzzword, and it's frankly hard to tell between the two of them. Can we move on now to talk about the work that you've been doing with the Atlanta Fed? Because you 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 have actually been going out and and asking companies 
what they're thinking and what what they're doing. So so tell us about how that sort of started and, and what you've been finding out. So the work with the Atlanta Fed, which we're doing something more recently with the Bank of England along the similar lines, is in some ways like the, the best way to measure uncertainty, which is you go out and the Atlanta Fed, it's called the Survey of Business Uncertainty. We've recruited around a thousand firms. And once a month, we send them a very short online survey that asks them to predict sales, investment and employment one month ahead. And you ask for the lowest, low, medium, high and highest outcomes and ask for the probabilities against them. One survey I saw and I, you were involved with, I, I think, was was also with the Atlanta Fed, in which you asked companies whether they had cut their investment um, as a result of, of yes. uncertainty. So, right. So is that is that part of the same survey exactly? It's the same. So you know, if you're so if you're you're I mean, there's a there's a practical reason. If you're asking firms the same questions every month, they get really bored really fast. So we. We have these special questions at the end, but they're also, it's like an ideal setup because something really fast happens. You're the Fed. You've actually got to respond to it quickly. You know, real data from the census or the BLS takes time to collect. You also doesn't tell you how much, what firms are planning to do. So we had a question at the end, how much, basically, how much are you concerned about trade uncertainty? And in a very, actually, we didn't, I don't think we called it trade uncertainty. You've got to be careful about leading people. So, you know, what do you think of recent changes in trade policy, which is a much more neutral question? And then what's its impact been on your firm? And have balance from, you know, very positive with numbers down to very negative and allow firms to fill it out. And you've got a range of numbers, but on average, the, you know, the, the mean and, the, you know, the modal response was it's been negative, and then you can do some weighted average and come up with impacts of trade. So when you did that, though, the number... It just wasn't that big, I think. It was a cut of what one percent, I think, of, of invest. Was that it? Yeah, an investment and like 0.2, percent of GDP. So these are kind of noisy numbers. But trade on. I mean, that in some ways that isn't that big. On the other hand, the US is an enormous economy, and to lose two point two or point three percent of GDP is pretty large. It's not going to cause a recession on its own. On the other hand, current growth rates in the GDP for the US are around two percent a year. So to lose, you know, 0.3%, it's something. I mean, it's material. I put it that way. It's definitely material. But it seems sensible. I mean, in some senses, that was the value. And in fact, when you drilled down in the survey, you found almost all of it was coming from manufacturing and construction. Manufacturing because they're getting directly hit. Construction, interestingly, when you spoke to construction people, it was exactly the story of the real options model. A lot of manufacturing businesses, which are very investment intensive were pausing building new factories and new depots you know there was kind of amazon doesn't want to quite roll out as fast as it would do and that was slowing down the construction industry i want to turn to another piece of of your research and especially because president trump seems to be very interested in the stock market he frequently tweets about the stock market and i know you've done some work looking at the relationship between these uncertainty indices and stock market returns so what do you study and, and sort of what do you find? Again, we, we rely on newspapers. We kind of answer the age-old question, which is what, what causes stock markets to jump? And we define a jump in the US as a change of more than 2.5% up or down. So that's like an enormous change. So there's typically two or three of them a year. They're really big jumps. And we go to the next day's newspaper and read carefully what journalists have written to use it to infer what caused the jump. So we looked at 1,200 jumps in the US going back to 1900 and about another 2,000 other countries. We also looked at how clear they are, not only what causes them, but how clear. And it's actually very easy if you've 
spent much time talking to journalists to understand whether the journalist knows what's going on, in which case they typically write in the headline, you know, stock market crashed when Bernanke puts up interest rates by 2%. The stylized facts you find is, one, the stock market since 1900 has become far clearer. Interesting, the last three years, clarity's dropped a bit down again. I mean, there's some fluctuations in this. It could be noise, but it could also be, you know, the Trump tweet effect that tweets come and go, go and the market seems to bounce up and down. So clarity is one phenomena, and that's clearly trended up. The other thing is what drives stock market jumps. You know, the big two factors, well, the big three, actually, the first one is macro news. So, you know, not surprisingly news about inflation rates or non-farm payroll, you know, that drives about a quarter of major stock market jumps. Uh, company earnings is about 20%. So Apple sh- announces great numbers or Goldman Sachs. And then at 15%, surprisingly, is unknown. So again, it seems kind of astounding, but 15% of stock market jumps the next day's newspapers. I mean, we think we're, we're looking primarily at the Wall Street Journal. They were explicitly right. They do not know why the stock market jumped. For the trade, you know, for trade talk, the other interesting finding is trade was not a, didn't drive a single stock market jump between 1940 and 2017. And then from 2017 onwards, it's driven 40% of them. So five jumps under Trump. So the last stock market jump attributed to trade before that was in 1939, which was on the barter, some kind of weird, like the, the wheat barter agreement. I don't, I don't think anyone's heard uh, of it. Oh, the wheat barter agreement. agreement. It's yes, like, of course. We'll look that one up. Yes, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I, mean, I don't know what it is. But so basically, it was, it was like you know, 70 years you go back, and then suddenly Trump has totally animated trade. And so now- uh, yeah, 40% of the stock market jumps are around trade. And in fact, in the last year, it's like more than half of them. And is it up and down? Yes. So when we define, yes, when we define jumps, there are two and a half percent changes in either direction. Interestingly enough, if you look at policy in the US, policies almost twice as likely to be accounting for positive jumps as negative jumps. And you think, why can this be? And the reason from talking to policymakers, and it's maybe not surprising when you think about it, is Good news, they tend to splurge out because they want it to be all over the front cover of the, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Whereas bad news, they leak out. And as a result, bad news never tends to generate a big jump because it's being leaked slowly out. So that's why policy policy tends to have a, a few number of really positive jumps and a large number of small negative jumps. And is that true also for President Trump in, in trade? No, for trade, I think it's more trade. Most of the trade, uh, from memory, I think you know we have five trade jumps under Trump, and I think four are negative and one are positive. Maybe you could say Trump is ill-disciplined. Trump, if he you know if he was a bit more disciplined, he'd leak the bad news out slowly and kind of splurge the good news. He just tends. To, I mean, he tells, for better or worse, he tells it as it is. Whereas the Fed, uh, the you know the, the federal government, seem to be more adept at you know, sneaking out the back door the bad news and you know front paging the good news. Okay, final question. Do you fundamentally think that there is any difference, there might be any difference between trade policy uncertainty and other kinds of policy uncertainty? Are we special? You know, as trade talks, I I hate to break it to you, but I, I actually don't think that trade uncertainty is particularly different from other types of uncertainty. I mean, if you're a businessman or businesswoman, all uncertainty is bad news. I think trade uncertainty is the big driver of it right now, but people that are you know making decisions are affected by monetary or fiscal or anything else. So, yeah, you know, coming back to what we do as economists, we try and learn from the past to predict the future. And 
we just haven't had any trade shocks. And so our best bet is just looking at other types of monetary war. I mean, war's actually historically been another big driver of uncertainty, Gulf War one and two. When you look at other drivers, they tend to have similar effects. Uncertainty goes up, firms pause on investing and hiring and consumers pause on spending. And then when uncertainty drops back down again, then they, they start up again. And I think the same would be true for trade. Let's hope so. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Nick Bloom, the William D. Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford University. We'll be sure to post a link to some of Nick's research on trade policy uncertainty and its effects at the episode page of our website. That is www.tradetalkspodcast.com. And thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's that one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because two channels of uncertainty, the, the risk effect and the real options effect is more powerful than one.